Well, this morning, um, we, we're gonna just keep trucking along through the book of Genesis, and while we haven't hit every story in this high-level overview of the book, we have been spending a lot of time over the past few weeks looking at the life of Abraham and Sarah. And we've learned that God called Abraham out of his father's house, and he called him to follow him to a new land. And he gave him a promise that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And God was so serious about this promise that way back in chapter 12, which is about, I don't know, four Sundays ago, he covenanted with Abraham. That is, he entered a binding agreement in that God would see his promise through. And we've seen that there's been a lot of waverings along the way, but we see that God was heaven bent on fulfilling the promise that he made to Abraham. And as we step into Genesis 21 this morning, we're gonna see that we have a God who not only makes promises, but a God that provides for the promises that he makes. He's not a God who's thrown by our waverings and our wanderings like we've learned a couple of weeks ago. He's not a God waiting for us to hold up our end of the bargain, but he's a God who follows through on our commitments to us and and his commitments to his people. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 21 on your phone or on your Bible or whatever you use. We're gonna look at the first 21 verses together and I'll read it and then... um, I'll say this is the word of the Lord and you'll respond with thanks be to God. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. The child grew and was weaned and Abraham held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. This was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And I will also make a nation of the slave's son because he is your offspring. Early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and a water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance, about a bow shot away. For she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die. While she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy up, and grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw well. 
So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. So we have um, three main points as we work through our passage today. The first is promise kept, promise kept. Right here at the beginning of our passage, we see something so beautiful. And it says this, the Lord came to Sarah as he had said. And again, the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. And Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham. And isn't it funny, like this moment that the text has been building up to, the moment that we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 12 comes to us with little fanfare, little celebration, little drama, just stated. There's a baby Sarah has that she bears for Abraham, and the Lord did it. And it just arrives. A couple sentences in your Bible, and we move on. Feels like it gets like a footnote in the text. And it's almost as if the writer is really unsurprised by what's happened. Because after all, we have a God who keeps his promises. And again and again, the Lord did for Sarah. The Lord did for Sarah what he promised. God kept his promise. Well, what about the mess-ups? What about Abraham and Sarah's constant screw-ups? What about when they took their slave and got her pregnant? And what about when Sarah, like, forced her out? God keeps his promise. What about the fact that Sarah seems to scoff at the very plan that God has for her? God keeps his promise. And what about the doubting when decades go by and there is still no child? God keeps his promise. The Lord did for Sarah just as he said. In spite of their waverings, in spite of their constant attempts to manipulate God's plan, God is faithful to the covenant that he made to Abraham and Sarah. In spite of it being biologically impossible for Sarah to have a child because of her age, God keeps his promise. And notice the result of the promise that God gives to Abraham and Sarah. The result is joy, so much joy, in fact, that they named the child Isaac, which means he laughs. And it makes me wonder about that text we read last week of of Sarah scoffing at the plan of God a little bit and chuckling, like, am I really going to have a kid? It makes me wonder if it's not God's way of saying he gets the last laugh. But notice that God's last laugh, too, It's not a punitive last laugh. It's not like a, see, I told you so last laugh. It's something that actually gives Sarah joy herself. The promise that Sarah receives from God results in her joy in him. And it's something that God doesn't just like rub it in her face. See, you should have trusted me all along. But he shows, see, I'm gonna give you a child and it's gonna bring you joy and I'm gonna keep following through in spite of your two-bit effort 
at following me. God just gives her joy. And I think we need this. Because I think part of us wants to constantly put God like in a place where he is angry with us. Constantly wants to put God in a place where we didn't do enough for him to bless us. Constantly wants to make God a rule keeper and making sure we're walking the line all the time, looking to slap us on the hand when we get out of line. But in the text over and over again in the scripture, we see that God is a God of grace. And we see God's grace come forward to Abraham. He gives a promise and he provides for the promises that he makes. God is worth following and he's worth holding on to. And Sarah in the middle of this, in the middle of her scoffing, now finds joy in the plan of God. She's had a bit of a change of heart that we'll talk about in a little bit. And she finds joy in the God who found her and called her to him. And some of us, we need to recapture the promises of God for our own life that God pronounces over us in spite of our waverings and our wanderings. Life has a way of beating us up, causing us to get bitter, causing, causing us to doubt, giving us opportunity for anger. But the promises of God are meant for our joy, and we're invited, friends, like Sarah, to take hold of them. Beth Moore says this, God has so much for you, dear one. And yes, seasons will come when he requires so much from you that you feel like you can't bear it. You do have a choice. You don't have to do it his way. You can choose bitterness, resentment, carnality, or mediocrity. Or you can go for it. With everything you've got, you can experience the unmatched exhilaration of partnering in divine triumph. The stakes are high, the cost is steep, but I'll promise you this, there is no high like the most high. And Sarah has an opportunity. She could have just maintained her bitterness, but in this moment she finds joy in the plan of God and she is on board. God makes promises and he provides for the promise he makes. And that promise was Isaac, which leads to our next point, promise threatened. Promise threatened. So Isaac grows up a little bit, and he gets weaned, and they decide to throw a little bit of a party. That would be kind of weird if you threw like a weaning party now. Hey, my kid's weaning, come over. Um, but that's what they do, because infancy through early toddlerhood was a dangerous time. Survival rates for infants is not what it is today. And so when Isaac would have been probably about three years old, they would have weaned and they would have celebrated that he made it to this important milestone. And a feast was thrown. And so we have a joyous kid, Isaac means he laughed, at a joyful feast with a joyful mom and dad. And I suppose most of the guests are also pretty happy too, if for no other reason than they're getting free food. But this child, this miracle child, is worth celebrating. But this celebration of holy laughter, of joy, it, about the promise of God 
coming true to a degree, gets, gets hampered by a different kind of laugh. It gets hampered by the mocking laughter of Ishmael. Now, Ishmael is probably between 13 and 16 years old at this time. He's not a little kid anymore. And Sarah, she looks at Ishmael laughing, not participating in joy, and she sees him as a threat to the promise she holds in her hands. And so we see that there are two reasons, potentially, why she saw him as a threat. One, it could have been a physical threat that she was concerned about, that that Ishmael could have seen Isaac as a competition to him receiving Abraham's um, possessions, so could have been a physical threat. But it's more likely because Ishmael, as a son of Abraham, was also culturally entitled to his possessions. But the promise is for Isaac and not for Ishmael. So like we've seen Sarah do before, she tells Abraham in verse 10, drive this slave, drive out the slave with your son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. And what we see is this fascinating change of heart in Sarah that we've alluded to. And we've seen the fascinating change of heart in Abraham. See, Abram's, Abraham's reaction to Sarah is one of distress. If you remember back in chapter 16, when Sarah gets peeved with the, with the slave girl, Hagar, she, she basically tells Abraham, you've caused me this problem, and Abraham basically like, gives the slave girl to Sarah. Remember that? Well, now Sarah is telling him something else, and Abraham is pausing. Like, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I remember the last time this happened, this did not go well. He pauses. And then Abraham is also feeling distressed because that's his son, Ishmael. Like he, that's his, this is flesh and blood. And he's feeling distressed. And so God meets him. Sarah's reaction is also telling because the last time she told Abraham what to do, she was just trying to manipulate all the circumstances with Abraham, trying to manipulate the plan of God, trying to take matters into her own hands. But here, Sarah seems to be more sensitive to the plan of God. She recognizes that if this child is the child of promise, then there cannot be competition. There's been a change of heart in both of the characters in spite of their messing up constantly. Sarah, the one who doubted, the one who laughed, is now the one who has faith, faith in God's plan. She has experienced the joy of the Lord, and that joy has changed the way that she perceives the world around us. And the God who makes promises provides for the promises he makes. And one of the things he provides for people who are his own are new desires, new want-tos, if you will, to follow in his plans. And here we see Abraham and Sarah given new desires after constantly trying to take matters in their own hands to do things according to God's way, even if they don't understand it. And friends, for those of us in Christ, God has given us his spirit and he's changed our hearts and he's giving us new want-tos so that we desire the things of God. 
And friends, just as Ishmael was a threat to the promise that God had made, we need to remember that we face threats today. Sure, they're not children. At least I hope they're not. But there are other things that threaten the promise that God makes to us. What are they? Well, some of them might be Satan. One of them might be Satan, right? Satan is a way of threatening us and the promise that God has made to us, that, he, that we belong to Jesus. He accuses us. He tells us we're failures, tells us we don't measure up, tells us we're not good enough, tells us we're not doing faith right, tells us that God is peeved with us. He's ripped, endlessly disappointed. He magnifies our sin. He's called an accuser of the brethren and a liar and the father of lies. And he spouts those lies to Christians trying to trip up faith. But friends, we have victory already in God. He has crushed the enemy and put him under his feet. And when we, when we feel those accusations from Satan, when we've fallen into sin, we can hold on to the promises of God that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We hold on to the promises of God in spite of the threats to the promise. And then the culture around us might be another threat to the promises of God within us. Might be a threat to the joy we have in Jesus. See, each and every day, you and I are bombarded with other promises, right? Hey, if you just live however you want, like, you do you. Like, you have autonomy. Like, that's the fulfilling life. But it's an empty promise, you know, if you just pursue wealth, or, or maybe if wealth is out of reach, if you just pursue comfort, your life will feel satisfying. But that's an empty promise. It doesn't actually hold true. It just leads to a shallow life. Maybe, you know, do whatever it takes to fit in with the crowd. Blend in. Don't be different. You'll have friends, you'll have everything you need. We're bombarded with empty promises by the world around us and by the sin that we struggle with. But God's promises are better than whatever promises man makes us or whatever promise sin offers to us. God's promises are better. Puritan Thomas Brooks says this, Satan promises the best but pays with the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. But God pays as he promises. All his payments are made in pure gold. We have a promise-making, promise-keeping God who, when we're tempted by other threats, to the promise that God's made us to hold us in Christ. We need to remember that God makes payments in pure gold, that he always delivers and provides for the promises he makes to us. Ishmael is a threat. So Sarah asks Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away, and God, for reasons I don't really understand, tells Abraham to do it. And Abraham obeys. 
And he gives him a promise that he'll be true to the promise that God made Ishmael in chapter 16, which leads to our final point, promise protected. Abraham obeys his God. He finds a water skin, like an old ancient Nalgene bottle, fills it up with water at the well, throws it on Hagar and Sarah and sends them off. And you can imagine what's probably going on in Abraham's heart at the moment. He's literally watching his son walk away trusting that God is going to do as he says. But the water runs out. And the boy and his mom are miles away from where they started. The sun is hot. Dehydration sets in. Adolescent um, Ishmael is dehydrated. He's weak in Hagar sets him under a bush, the text said, and it's more likely like, to be meant that he, because you don't really set a 16-year-old um, under a bush, that she probably drug her lifeless son under a bush and cries out to God. She says in verse 16, I can't bear to watch the boy die and wept loudly. But then God shows up to Hagar again. The slave girl gets a second visit from God. And this is what it says. What's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid. For God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Get up, help the boy up, and grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well. So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. The God who makes promises provides for the promises he makes. And God made a promise to Isaac that, that, and to Abraham, and he protects that promise. But he also made a promise to Ishmael that he would become a great nation. And in the middle of the suffering of Hagar and Ishmael, God shows up. He hasn't forgotten the promises that he made to them. He heard her. And he heard her cry. And he heard the boys cry. Because suffering is one of the other threats to the promises of God that we perceive in our lives. That when things get difficult, that our, when our circumstances are hard, suffering has a way of stealing joy, of making us doubt the promises of God, of making us doubt his provision and care for us, of making us bitter and angry. things that are really normal to feel, in fact. The Psalms actually give us a whole book of people feeling all sorts of experiences, feelings before God. But we have a Savior, friends, who suffered, who gets what it is to suffer, who joins us in our suffering. And in the middle of the suffering of Hagar and Ishmael, he gives them provision and he gives them himself. God opens Hagar's eyes to see a well that's there. And it's enough well, it's enough water in that well for them to fill up the water skin, give the boy a drink, and keep going. And I don't wonder, and I don't want to over-allegorize the text, but I don't wonder if there's something in there for us. That in suffering, 
When we feel like that God has lost view of us, when we're crying out saying, God, I don't understand why this is happening to us, that God provides enough and it's enough to keep going. Even though we don't understand where it's going, and I'm sure Hagar didn't, it becomes enough to get through. He doesn't leave us. He does the same thing with us now. When we barely have enough to keep going, he gives us what we need. He doesn't leave us. The deepest need we have, friends, is for God himself. And God gives Ishmael himself too. Look at verse 20. God was with the boy and he grew. He settled in the wilderness and became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The God who makes promises provides for the promises he makes. God gave Ishmael not only enough water to, for the journey, but he, he gave him his very presence in the middle of the journey. How does Ishmael keep going? He keeps going because God was with him. God provides himself for us, loved ones, in the middle of our wilderness and our wandering. He's with us. And we have a God that we've seen over and over again in the book of Genesis defy our expectations, go against what we think is normal, constantly inviting us into a new way of seeing the world, that we have an impossible doing God who sits over everything that happens and a God who promises to follow through on his commitment to save us, to hold on to us, a God who promises his people over and over and over again that he will hold on to them no matter what happens. And so, friends, in the middle of, of whatever's going on, we hold on to the promises of God. We embrace his plans when we don't understand the way the world is working, when we don't understand what's happening to us, when it feels like our faith is weak, we hold on to the promise, recognizing that God holds on to us. And what we see in Genesis is over and over and over again is that there are two ways to live. There's God's way and there's another way. And one way leads to death, but God's way always leads to life and wholeness and flourishing. Even if we don't understand that, even if it means suffering in this world, God's ways lead to life and we're invited to trust in him. God makes a promise and provides for the promise he makes. 